Strachan and Bell together. There's Cooper breaking through. A chance now. This will be the fourth ball for Aberdeen. And Cooper puts it in with his legs. Well, suddenly it's become a rout. Of course, when things are going wrong against you, you don't get the breaks of the ball. Cooper in with Stewart. He didn't really know where the ball was, but he got the break. And as you say, it's a schoolboy's dream being able to take your time. Knowing that really, all you've got to do is crack it into the back of the net. Now, look, and we're going to try and keep this breezy at the start because if you're an Aberdeen fan, which of course you are because you're listening to this nonsense, you know what's coming. Uh, so we'll try and keep it bright at the start. We've got a packed show. Uh, as always, to discuss the week's events with me is uh, back from his trip to Greece is Richard Hay. How are you doing, Richard? Yeah, okay, Martin. Okay. Uh, somewhat better before this afternoon's antics, I have to say. Did you get us back, bring us back in and nice and duty free? Uh, not for you, no, but I did bring nice things back for this household. So to enable my continued accumulation of brownie points, allow me to get to Helsinki. So Good stuff. And also joining us on this episode, well, in the absence of Martin Ingram, uh, we've called in one of the greatest Don's minds uh, available to help us, help us discuss today's events and the events of the past week, and also to talk about the release of his revised version of his book, Fergie Rises. It's the esteemed Michael Grant. How are you doing, Michael? I'm all right, uh, Martin. I, I'm aware that I need to be sombre in this uh, podcast, but uh, in light of the uh, recent events. But uh, let's try and be upbeat and entertaining for uh, your army of listeners. Yeah, well, let's do that. I mean, I know, Michael, that we usually, uh, we joke that we often usually have you on after defeats, but today is really taking the piss. Well, you know something, I know, I know you've said this before, and I, I hadn't really n- noticed it or realised it, but is, is that true? And, and if so, I think you should be very careful about inviting me back ever, because it does seem, <laughs> it does seem to correlate with horrendous results. Uh, let's just say that we won't be, we won't be booking you in advance for um, any time in December. For example, yeah. after the seventeenth, for example. Fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. Just in case, um, there's a whole, in saying that there's a whole list of people who only seem to be on when there's defeats. Um, so um, <laughs> yeah. we may not, we may not even bother doing one just in case. Uh, so anyway, right? Let's get it, let's get into it. Um, firstly, we're going to talk about uh, last Thursday's game uh, away at Greece, um, uh, a two-two draw uh, against PAOK. Now, Richard. As I mentioned earlier, you're a man. You're a man in, who travels to these sort of places. Um, we joked about last week, saying it was going to be a bit hairy and all that. Um, it seemed that sort of that sort of stuff seemed to pass off with an incident. Uh, but how was the trip? Yeah, it was good fun, as all these European always tend to be, even if your team gets tonked. But um, obviously, they put in a pretty credible performance on the pitch and came out with a, a, a very encouraging result, albeit one that wasn't enough to continue our European run. I don't know if it's quite 
can you call it a run when we stumbled out of the uh, Europa League qualifiers into the Conference League and haven't actually won a game yet but it was um, two moments to celebrate I, honestly I, beforehand I thought if we come out of there with better than a 2-0 or a 3-0 defeat we'll be doing well because there's no question that Pauk have quality and we've seen already what happened to Hearts when they went over there early in the season they were torn apart and there were certainly points during the evening where we were really struggling to keep them at bay as well, but we showed some quality going forward, and that's, um, I think, as we'll come to talk about, really the main difference between um, the performance on Thursday and the performance on Sunday, because, you know, if we'd gone a couple of goals down in Greece, it could easily have turned quite messy as well. I think they would have had the quality to exploit us. Um, but the trip itself, yeah, I mean, I didn't have a, a huge amount of time in the city, but um, I have to say I walked from the city centre to the ground. Um, no issue whatsoever. No problem with streets being closed around the ground or anything like that. I know a lot of the Dawn support um, were kind of bust in a good hour, hour and a half before kickoff. I don't know what that must have been like, but um, very strange to see like pictures being tweeted by the press corps. Um, around 6.30 of um, a good seven 800 Aberdeen fans in the away end already. Um, I, can, I understand why why they did that, but from everything I saw, it didn't really seem like there was a, a need to do that, as long as you kept your wits about you and you were sensible. I, I suppose it depends. You don't want to maybe draw attention to yourself, but of course, most people when travelling are going to have a, an Aberdeen top on or something, so that immediately does draw attention to you. It's, it, that's not for me so I suppose it was easier for me to blend into the background despite being six foot five and so on. Um city itself, um sort of engagingly chaotic I thought. Um some really nice backstreet bars and restaurants as I discovered later that evening. And um the game, well, we all saw the game, didn't we? Are we gonna talk about that? You're not wanting me to go in chapter and verse in the game? Uh, no, we'll, <coughs> well we'll talk about the game as well. I mean um well, Michael, um, I you know, you know you're here. You're an Aberdeen fan, so I assume you saw the game. Um, we we obviously we, you know starts off. You know we expect as as kind of expected. You no, know, we're going to be under a bit of pressure, uh, but um, we we you know in the early parts of the game we seem to deal with that deal with that pressure very well. And you know, 15 minutes in, an absolutely fantastic goal from us. Um, Duke comes in for Mayovsky, which raised a lot of eyebrows before the game. Um, but a really good goal, um, you know, long ball from Roos, um, Ryan Duncan to Devlin, another fantastic ball in by, by Devlin, and then Duke with with that finish. Yeah, it, it was um, it was a great goal, really well made, uh, and apart from anything else, I really liked and enjoyed that it was Duke that scored it because we've been waiting for him to come alive this season and um i know that he has you know he'd had he'd scored a couple up until that that point but that felt like a throwback to duke of last season um and uh, you know it, it is weird isn't it that um we haven't won a single game in in europe this season because it doesn't really feel that way does it it feels like it's been a kind of positive experience not just for supporters but you know from from the way the team has been so competitive um, we have scored in every game at least once, you know, which I think is not to be sniffed at. Um, and we'll come on to it in a second. But I mean, the, 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 both goals in uh, Greece were were just really, really enjoyable from a supporter's point of view. And um, I mean, I went to Frankfurt with my two boys 
great experience, great stadium, atmosphere, the whole experience of a, of a European away game. I, 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 you know, I, I hadn't really fancied the Greek uh, the trip to Greece so much, but I must admit, watching it, I thought that looks like a proper old-fashioned style kind of European experience. You know, with the stadium, the atmosphere, the constant noise. It all looked, um, it all looked something that was quite, you know, I was quite envious of the, of whatever it was, nearly a thousand fans that were there. Um, but to, you know, to go back to the game, yeah, I thought we we put an awful lot into it, rode our luck at times, but um, you know, I, I thought we deserved to come away with something for the effort that was that was put into the match. Richard, we've spoken about him before, uh, but the equaliser from PEOK comes ten less than ten minutes later. Um, it's, it's that man Rubizic again. Who I'm sure we'll discuss later on this this evening. Um, he's drawn forward out of position, and then he finds himself caught ball watching, um, and then and you know, we, we find ourselves at one one. I think to be fair, he he'd been tasked with following that guy around by the looks of it. I think tactically that was the idea. Whether he was the right man for that job is another question. Um, the, the defenders behind him, um, Jensen and Gartman don't do brilliantly either it has to be said and they exploit the space very well uh, the ball coming back across the box and again we've got nobody the second line of midfield isn't isn't tracking the runners and um, we've got guys in the line which is obviously good but the guys are marked eight yards out of course he's going to uh, be favourite to knock that in as materialised so again on this instance I think he's a little bit rash when he comes out like that Rubiziki and uh, lunges for the ball you really do need to try and make that challenge but I can understand I think tactically why he was out there and why he was following his player out there he has to win it though doesn't he you know I mean as soon as he didn't win that ball I I, I said to my boys we're in trouble here because you know it just pulls you out of shape doesn't it it um, does, but again, I suppose that's the risk you take tactically if you're asking somebody to man-mark. You know, we saw so much of that under Derek McInnes of that man-for-man -man system defending in big games that we're probably quite used to it now. We are relying on the players winning their individual battles. Yes. And if there is one slip, one mistake, then you're in trouble. Yep, that was exactly it. That, that, and against a side that good. I don't think Pauk were particularly strong defensively, um, as probably shown by the fact we put four goals past them over two games. But I thought in the final third there were there were moments of real danger from them and that was one of them they capitalised on it. Yeah, I mean Richard at half time, you know, we find you no know, you find yourselves at one one. What was the what was the what was the feeling like in the at the way end at half time? Um yeah, I think folk were, were generally encouraged by what they'd seen. Um again, it can't just have been me that thought that we were in for a really, really difficult evening. So to get the bonus of getting that goal, and that really, really good goal to celebrate as well. And it was, as Michael says, a great atmosphere from the home fans. Um, obviously, there is the issue of the racist abuse of uh, Guy, which is separate to that, I suppose, in a way, because you know, it only takes one or two absolute idiots to, for that to happen. But in terms of the noise generated by the support, it was it was like a really intense European evening. Um, it didn't feel like the home team were going through the motions. They were really kind of coming at us. And we were standing up pretty well. Um, we had, the, as I say, we scored a good goal. And we had other sort of half openings. There was one when Graham Shinney gets into a really good position, puts the ball across the box. 
and it's a def it comes off a defender's legs and loops up straight to the keeper, which with a bit more luck might have uh, been a bit more challenging for him. So we, you know, we we felt as if the system and the formation was working quite well, and we were causing them some problems. You know, we we didn't collapse after the equaliser. It wasn't a case of us being really, really hemmed in and and pinned back. Yes, we could have had better quality and shown better quality on the ball. I think that's been a recurring problem, to be honest with you. Um, despite the fact that we are having moments when we're scoring really, really good goals. But overall, our retention and, you know, the care that we show in the ball perhaps wasn't there. Yeah, Michael, uh, Michael you, you mentioned there that you know, at the top end of the pitch, they are they're, they're a really capable side. Um, in the second half, we really we went through spells of being under quite a bit of pressure. Um, a couple of, couple of really good stops by Kel Roos. Um, but then this, then sixty-seven minutes, they get their second goal, uh, which, following a couple of corners and a couple of balls at the box, um, this guy find one of their, um, the guy Samata finds himself, um, just basically well, not on, not my mark, but he out he out jumps everybody, um, and, we're, and it's a poor goal to concede to go two one down, isn't it? Yeah, it was. It, it it felt like the kind of goal we should be able to defend and cope with and not be surprised by, you know. Um, and it, I think it's always frustrating when you see, whether it's Aberdeen or whether it's Scotland, losing goals like that um, to such technically good sides because you think you can, you can excuse it or understand it when you lose and you and you know when you when you're carved open and there's really bright, crisp, quick play, but you know that that felt a bit bread and butter. To be honest with you, um, and it felt like we could have done better at it, and we could have done better at it. It's a story we'll come back to again from today's game as well, in terms yeah. of three big centre halves there, and we lose a couple of successive headers in the box, and it wasn't the only time that happened during the course of the evening. Um, so yeah, as Michael says, like with the the winner in Frankfurt, like with a couple of other goals mm. throughout the European trip, it's just goals which you feel you'd be disappointed to lose at a domestic level, let alone against the, uh, the sort of teams that we're playing in this group stage. But Richard then comes, well, it comes that to Jamie McGrath free kick. Um, now, be honest. You didn't expect him to take a shot from there, did you? Well, being at the other end of the ground, you couldn't really tell how far out he was, to be honest with you. Um, so, I mean, obviously he looked quite a few steps before he did hit it, like he was going to hit it. And, um, you know, the other option would have been, obviously, just the, the loop into the box, where, as I said earlier, we weren't really winning this year ahead, as you might expect, given the size of some of our players involved. So, yeah, have a go. You've got the confidence to have a go, and Jimmy McGrath has been playing well. Um, and he nails it. He absolutely nails it. Right behind that, albeit about 250 yards away, because there was a big gap between the, the stands and the touchline in the stadium, although it still felt closer than any seat behind the goal at Hampton, I can assure you. Um, and, and just a, a beautiful hit. A beautiful hit. I've seen some criticism of the keeper, the thing is, it's not the keeper's side, you know, it's, it's the side the wall's meant to be guarding. If anything, if you look at it, it kind of goes over the guy on the right-hand side of the wall and he doesn't make a jump, uh, whereas I think if he does jump, he probably blocks it. It's, it, it's just a beautiful strike. Uh, sometimes you have to just sit back and acknowledge um, the quality that was on offer there from, from McGrath. 
and certainly the the composure and I suppose the the backbone shown as well which again is direct contrast to what we saw this afternoon immediately after going 2-1 down in a febrile atmosphere to bring that quality to the table and to get the equaliser was was really really impressive actually from uh, from this Aberdeen team who aren't used really to playing in environments quite such as this yes they have Parkhead, yes they have Ibrox, but for the most part a lot of these domestic games at these grounds don't have the sort of fevered atmosphere that we saw and that we heard on Thursday night. So really impressive there. Um, after that it is absolutely backs to the wall though and um, we, we manage it though. We get out of there with the thanks of VAR and um, some last ditch defending and we get out of there with a draw. And Michael Richard um, Richard says there that you'd seen some criticism of the of the keeper. Um, some of the criticism I, I saw from the keeper came from some of your colleagues. Now I know you're not kind of man to take that kind of nonsense. So <laughs> did you have to clamp a few people and tell them to wind their necks in? <laughs> um, no, I didn't do that. Um, but uh, I mean, I, you know, when, when they lined up the, or when we got the free kick. You know, Richard says that from from the far end of the ground, it was it was difficult to see how far away he was. I mean, I think for for those of us watching on television, you just thought he's too far away. You know, I don't think we really expected a shot at at, at that point, or or at least we didn't think it would be one that would be successful because you think, my God, it's going to have to be a hell of a hit from there. Um, you know, and and you're kind of thinking, well, you know, Clarkson, Clarkson might have been, might have been the the one you'd have, you'd have wanted to be on and taking it, um, but yeah, hell of a hit, I, you know, iconic moments probably far far too strong, but certainly a certainly a, a lovely moment in the campaign, and as you said there, or, or or Richard said, you know, I I think, I think they have now relaxed in the European games a little bit in, in the sense that they, they know they can compete now. They've played all three teams. Um, you know, there, there aren't any surprises from really, you, you might argue that all the, the hardest games are out the way in terms of going to Greece and going to Germany. Um, and obviously now that now that they're out, the, the Eintracht game becomes a bit of a dead rubber. I, I would like to see them make a real push in Helsinki, not just because you guys are going and it'll be a a great experience for you to, especially if they win. But I mean, it, you know, it's significant money um, to to get a win. I I I can't see us getting anything from the Eintracht game, especially if, as I hope, um, they play a week inside ahead of the cup final. Um, but you know, I I I just think that they they know now that they can compete and they won't be embarrassed in these European games, and and it is kind of allowing them to to play with a bit of. Conviction and and guts really even in as as Richard said it, it sounded hostile and it, it sounded noisy and I mean relentlessly noisy in a way that you don't get even in Glasgow. Yeah, just to back up, Michael, that I really, really, really do want us to win in Helsinki, and not just because obviously I want us to win every game as we all do, but because I think over the course of it, if we deserve that, it would be a real shame to come out with two or three points from this campaign where I think we've competed much better than that. I also think we're a better team than Helsinki and I want the table to reflect that. Um, you know, it does at the moment, but only on two points to one because of we've got uh, we've got that point on Thursday night. And there is a real frustration here because just with a bit more composure in the home games, 
particularly against particularly against Helsinki, where we dominated most of that game. Um, I think the, the collapse against Pauk is a, maybe a separate matter. Just a bit more composure, a bit more know-how of these games. And I kind of feel we could have been onto something. Uh, it's, you know, you cannot tell how Pauk would have reacted if they really needed to win on Thursday night, because it turned out they didn't. They qualified with a draw, so... But if they'd really needed... Say they'd come to Pataudry and lost and really needed to, to get the three points last uh, on Thursday night, it could have been an entirely different match from start to finish. However, I think there'll be some regrets in that dressing room, and there's definitely some regrets with me, that we just didn't have that extra bit of composure and, I suppose, quality... But we're not far away. You know, we really aren't far away. You look at the results that Hearts had last year against the first and second place teams in their groups. They got scudded. I think it was 4-0 and 4-1. 4-0 in Turkey and 4-1 against Fiorentina. They had the advantage of being seeded third and played some rabble from Estonia a couple of times. So they, they ended up with six points, which they'll likely outdo what we manage. But <laughs> we've competed really well, but... I just wanted to show that extra quality to get over the finishing line. And, and does it come down to experience of these games? In which case, the need to finish third next season, or this season rather, or win the Scottish Cup, um, but to try and ensure that we get what will probably be one more season of the guarantee of group stage football for Scottish teams in this little window is really, really important because I, I, I think with that added knowledge and experience in the team, I think we could use that and I think we could move forward. Excuse me. Yeah, Michael, what's been your, your thoughts on the, the campaign so far? I mean, that's us out now. Um, am I being harsh to say that it's just the usual kind of hard luck story? Yeah, I, yeah, I do think that's harsh. I mean, I think it's a, I think it was a difficult group or it is a difficult group. Um you know, uh, as Richard said there, um, uh, I think it was a, a, a Latvian team, wasn't it, um, that Hearts had, and they beat them. They beat them home and away, and they get they got something like eight hundred and fifty thousand pounds for those two wins. You know, um, not at all insignificant. Um, so you know, I think Helsinki are stronger than that Latvian team were that Hearts had, uh, and I interact in and Pauk, I, I I think if we're being honest, those were always going to be the top two, uh, top two qualifiers. I, I'm I'm sometimes a bit sceptical when I hear managers talking about how, you know, we'll learn from this and we and we'll be better if we get back in next season. Postecoglou said it about Celtic in the Champions League group, and this season you're pretty much seeing the same thing that they did last season. They had moments in most games, but didn't didn't get anything from them really. Um, but I must admit, I do think that if Aberdeen were to get into the group stage next season, they would really benefit from from having experienced this campaign. You know, this is a, a group of players who are not used to Europe, and this has all been new for them. And I think they've they've competed really commendably. So that was PAOK away. Uh, we're going to move on now. Uh, during the week, there was news released regarding um, our our cup final adventure. Um, December the 17th, a Hamden against Rangers. And um, Richard, it was announced uh, that, well, it was announced the ticket splits and the ticket prices, which of course has raised the ire, rightly, of, of Aberdeen fans. Um, Rangers are getting 25,000 versus Aberdeen's 19,500. I don't know what you want me to say. I mean, I think nobody was remotely surprised that this was happening um, because we've seen it 
before in this competition, not with Aberdeen necessarily, um, but the the concept which we had to fight quite hard for with the SFA back in 2000, that the team should start with an equal allocation and if they can't sell that out then fine. It has never really been adopted by the SPFL for these uh, League Cup finals, which is really disappointing because it does, as uh, in the words of it was either Tam Cowan or Stuart Cosgrove yesterday, it just demonstrates the inherent bias to everybody that exists within Scottish football. And how, what else can you call it when you end up with a final, finals which always take place at Hamden, finals which are always now going to offer you a minority of the tickets. And it doesn't seem to matter, you know, we could sell at Pataudry every week, but it would still be because they have a bigger stadium capacity, it wouldn't matter, they would get more tickets. It's just pretty ridiculous frankly you look at those early stage matches for rangers as well and you're getting you know you're 20,000 inside ibrox um so the argument that they always take a bigger support is just it's just nonsense um it's a final it's meant to be a neutral venue and the whole point of a neutral venue is that it's meant to be a fair venue <clears throat> already because of its geography isn't a fair venue there's not too much we can do about that other than take the game to Gla uh, take the game through to Edinburgh to Murrayfield, <clears throat> but the SFA obviously vehemently against that. Murrayfield's perhaps the only other stadium in Scotland which is a worse uh, viewing experience than Hamden, although it's running close. Um, yeah, no one's remotely surprised, but it's not going to change either. I mean, they're just going to they'll take the. They'll take the abuse on the chin and they'll move on and they'll be they'll be happy to uh, to just do the same again next year with whoever makes the final next year because what they want is a game between their two sides that they can split their tickets 50-54 and uh, their sponsors are happy and everybody's happy. Um, that said, I have to say that if we had got 50% of the tickets... Maybe we wouldn't have sold them. I mean, it's the week before Christmas. A lot of people have gone to a lot of expense getting to a lot of these European games. I think people should have a belief that we can win that game. Whereas, you know, if we'd been up against Celtic and certainly that run of finals, we had up, up against Celtic by the end. You were kind of doubting whether the team really had a chance. I think the, the support should believe that they have a chance of winning this competition. Um, but we should have been given the option of selling half that stadium and we simply weren't which is which is just ridiculous michael some of the stuff i've read about the stadium um obviously about having the option the option to sell that is you know eventually you can give some of the tickets back um, and some of the, the reasoning that that's not available is obviously because of the way hamden is hamden is set up um and now that's i mean you, don't, you, you probably don't have to search too many episodes of this podcast to hear us criticising the National Stadium. Uh, I mean, what's your what's your stance on that one? Well, listen, they'll say that to split it down the middle causes difficulties because if you don't, you know, if if, you're, if Aberdeen promised to give a wedge of tickets back, then where is that wedge of tickets if, if um, they start selling from the halfway line at the North Stand? All of that, I think, is irrelevant to the fact that Aberdeen told the SPFL that they think they could sell half the ground and they should have had the opportunity to do so. And they have had that opportunity to do so in the past and they have done it. I mean, the the, 
the Scottish Cup final of 2017, um, you know, we all remember, apart from anything else, well, everybody remembers it for Roger scoring the winner in the in the final minute. But I also remember it for that, um, you know, the TIFO, uh, the, the Aberdeen display before the game. Um, and I just remember how fantastic it looked to see a 50-50 split for that final. And as Richard says, it's it's been adopted by the SFA when it's when it's appropriate. And, we, you know, listen, there are very few times when it is appropriate in Scottish football when it's not the old firm. You know, I think Rangers and Celtic, eh, sorry, um, Aberdeen Hearts and Hibs are the, are the three that would you know, legitimately, incredibly ask for a 50-50 split at Hamden. Um, the other thing is, and, and Richard hinted at it, or uh, sorry, alluded to it there, you know, that, that Celtic team was far more formidable than this Rangers team is. Now, the Rangers are improving and, and they will be favourites. Um, of course they will be for the final. But I think... Aberdeen fans would go there thinking we've got a shot at this, you know, that, that you've got a kind of puncher's chance in this final. Um, uh, notwithstanding the the game that we're about to talk about soon, you know, I mean, Rangers are, are not anywhere near as formidable at the moment as Celtic were when we were still able to fill half the ground to go down and, and, and see Aberdeen take them on. So I just think it's really desperately disappointing. If Aberdeen couldn't have sold half the ground I think they'd have been pretty damn close to it, you know. And the idea that the 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 the, the showpiece occasion would have been lessened by some empty seats in the Aberdeen end, I I just don't buy that. I mean, there's a lot of things the SPFL could do to improve the image of the Scottish game, and you know, fretting about some tickets, and you would not be talking about a lot, if if any, uh, of unsold tickets at the, at. The, in the Aberdeen half of of Hamden, I think is 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 pretty absurd, really, just to to prioritise that. So, you know, a, a cup final, if both sides can fill half the ground, they should get the chance. And also, sorry, before before we before I finish about it, I think one of the biggest nonsenses is taking into account semi final attendances. What 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 relevance does a semi final? Uh, the appeal of a semi-final have to the appeal of a final. I mean, God, how much have we heard about how Celtic took 80,000 to Seville and Rangers took, you know, they claim 100,000 to Seville. Well, how many did they take to the semi-final? Did they take 80 and 100,000 to the semi-finals? Of course they didn't, because the final is a standalone showpiece occasion. And, and to say that semi-attendances or uh, semi-followings have any relevance to it is utter nonsense. Agreed. Agreed. Right. right. Let's 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 move on let's to something a little more light and a little more cheerful. Michael, one of the one of the reasons we've got you on this week is um, a few weeks back saw the release of the revised version of your book Fergie Rises. I what to ask you for initially? It's it's fairly obvious. There's been a lot of a lot of things happened since the book book originally came out. Um, you a lot of the things have been able, I don't want to say to, to be able to tie the story up in a bow, but there's been some quite major occurrences. Um, was was that the reason, or had you been working on it before the anniversary? No, no. to be honest, um, uh, Martin, and, and listen, thanks very much for giving me the opportunity to, to plug it. That's that's really appreciated. Um, no, the, the, book, um, the book came out in a hardback in uh, 2014, and uh, the publishers then um, ne never did bring it out as a paperback. And 
I was approached. So, to be honest, it had been kind of rumbling along for a little while that there might be interest from other publishers in, in taking over the rights to it and releasing it as a paperback. And, and that's what happened earlier this year with um, uh, uh, publisher Pete Burns from Polaris. And um, Pete basically said to me, listen, it's up to you. We can just put the book out exactly as it was uh, or if you would like to make any changes or amendments to it or updates to it, then, you know, that that's great too. And I thought, well, I, I, yeah, I, I should really. Uh, now, obviously, the book, if anybody, or whether you're familiar with it or not, the book is, is about Fergie's years at Aberdeen, um, you know, 78 to 86. Now, that obviously is a standalone period in time. But, as you said, Martin, there have been... You know significant things around that team, the the players from that era, Fergie himself. You know health wise, I I think it would have been remiss of me not to acknowledge the significance of Neil Cooper's passing and and just what that meant to the club and what it meant to the people from that era, and also wanted to just kind of get in the fact that there's now a statue for Fergie at the ground and that he'd been back a couple of times, been back at Cormac Park. And just health issues that the, the, the some of the players have had, and, and but then kind of hopefully a, a quite an upbeat kind of um, you know conclusion with the kind of celebration, the fortieth uh, celebration of of Gothenburg earlier this year, and just I felt that was quite a big production really for the club and and even from the city, you know, um, and it was a nice way to just kind of uh, you know as you say to kind of put. A, Put a ribbon on the on on that era, and um, you know try and haul it up to haul it up to date as much as I could. Yeah, because the, the the story now, of course, is is going to be forever tinged with tragedy. Um, in that the the one time they managed to get the squad back, most of our squad back together again, there's obviously that that notable person missing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and and you know he was. He was an A-lister, wasn't he? He was an Aberdeen yeah. Don's A-lister. I mean, a massive, massive character. And, you know, if you see these guys and if you saw them around the time of the 40th uh, anniversary stuff, they were genuinely moved by it because obviously they're not together collectively uh, ever, really, you know? Um, I think certainly for that coming together, I was surprised to see all of them there because we know there have been rifts between some of the some of the former teammates but they were all there they were all enjoying each other's company but they were all mindful and kind of you know just had that kind of bit of melancholy at times about the fact that Neil Cooper wasn't there and yeah so you know so I, I just thought the club handled that really well and um but, but there's no question that um the that you know, there was a lot of kind of camaraderie and uh, pleasure in in the the players being together for that uh, for that weekend of events. But you know, there was that little cloud over it, and um, you could tell you could tell that none of the players went very long without thinking about Tati Cooper over that uh, that few days when they were uh, otherwise in, really enjoying each other's company. Yeah, we saw. I think it was it was four days of events. There was obviously the the, the great documentary on. Um, the BBC as well. Um, that that you were you were the, you were there for the the premiere of it at the cinema, weren't you, Michael? Yeah, I was. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which was um, 
I was very lucky enough that I managed to win the tickets to get there. No, we don't get any freebies doing this podcast, so I, I only got there through, through sheer luck. Um, hang on, hang on. No freebies. Are you not going to confess to getting a free copy of the revised book? Oh, you snitch, man. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I didn't I wonder who, who snaffled it. I, I stand corrected. Um, so, okay, I, we usually don't get any freebies on this podcast. So I was very lucky to be there. Um, at the, pre- do- the premiere of the documentary, um, and as you mentioned there, Michael, um, you know, even seeing seeing even seeing someone like Willie Miller getting emotional, it's it's it was it's ve- that sort of thing is very touching, isn't it? Yeah, it, it was. I mean, I, I spoke to Willie that that night, and after if I remember right, they they, they did the screening, and then they were going to have a Q and A. Q&A. Well, they did have a Q and A. Um, which Willie Willie was on the stage for that, and I bumped into him in between in the in a couple of minutes uh, before the Q and A, uh, and I remember saying, to him, "Oh, that was really that was really moving, you know, because um, you know you see him uh, you see him getting up during the documentary, don't you, and you know, having to having to walk away and because he can't speak about Tati." And uh, I said to him, "That was really moving." And he turned round to me, and he, his eyes were gone, like he was. Um, he was, you know, he was really red around the eyes, and um, I, uh, I said, "Oh God, Willie, are you, are you all right?" And he wasn't sure that he could go ahead and do the Q and A because he thought they would ask about Tatty, and he wouldn't be able to kind of keep it together, frankly, you know. And I, I kind of joked with him. I said, "This is Willie Miller. Come on, we, I don't want to see emotion from you and you know that sort of stuff." But uh, thankfully, he 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 did rally himself and uh, you know obviously handled the q and a really well but, but i mean i remember him and you'll remember too martin he said to he said to uh, uh, rob mclean wasn't it he said you know listen don't ask me about tatty i won't be able to speak about him uh, so that's how raw the whole thing was for for all of them you know um and it, it listen it really did add it add real it added real kind of emotion and and and, and depth to an already pretty loaded kind of weekend for you know which would otherwise just have been a celebration you know but it, it, that, that certainly gave it real poignant poignancy i think uh just a quick one from me michael um obviously i'm disappointed that the revised version means you didn't uncover some more trophies that we won under fergie that we've all forgotten about but um is there more interviews this time with different personalities because i thought one of the strengths of the original book was the way in which that whole world was recreated it wasn't just about interviews with the players it was about interviews with opponents etc etc listen there's 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 the the update is is relatively brief i must admit i did speak to people around about uh about Neil and um, I spoke to Willie again about it, you know. Um, but I, I did have to acknowledge that really the, you know, the the, the book is about that period from uh, under Ferguson. And I mean, the crucial thing about it was, or it is the, the fact that we almost lost Ferguson, didn't we, in two thousand eighteen? The same month that Neil Cooper did pass away was when Ferguson had his brain hemorrhage, you know. Um, and I think. Everybody held their breath around, well, around football, but you know, it's certainly around Aberdeen that um, that he might uh, that they might lose a manager at that point, you know. Um, so yeah, I mean, I I did speak to people to to bring all that stuff into it, but there's, uh, you know, the, it's not it's not fundamentally changed the structure or the the kind of core of the book by any means. Okay, thank you, very, thank you very much, Michael. I mean, look, if you if you're listening to this podcast, you're a big Aberdeen fan, and so if you're a big Aberdeen fan, 
myself and Richard cannot recommend Fergie Rises enough to you. Um, as always, it's available from all good bookshops and some rubbish ones as well. Um, and, you know, it's coming up for Christmas as well. So, look, perfect stock and filler. Well, Martin, it's, it's very kind of you to say that, and I was thrilled a few days ago to be told that it's going to be stocked in the club shop, which uh, hadn't happened the first time around. So uh, genuinely, genuinely, really, really chuffed about that. You know, just from a from a supporter's point of view, I've you know really uh, pleased about that. So yeah, uh, it, it will be in the club shop if anybody would like to buy it for their dad or granddad or granny or grandmum uh, or mum at Christmas. You know, that's I, I've got to acknowledge my market here is getting on a bit. You know, <laughs> hey, well even 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 if you're not old enough to remember Gothenburg or the Fer Fergie era, Aberdeen, trust me, you should read this. This is you no, know, you should everybody should be aware of the history of their football club, and this is. Fantastic period in the club's history, so can't recommend the book enough for you. Brilliant, Martin. Thanks very much. No problem. Unfortunately, now we come to the part of the podcast where we're going to have to talk about today's game. Uh, we were away at Parkhead. Um, a very, very chastening afternoon, Richard. Um, simple fact, Richard. Another trip to Parkhead. Another match where we don't lay a glove on them. You know, we don't actually have to talk about the game at Parkhead today. No. We could just ignore it completely and pretend it didn't happen. That <laughs> is, talk, if you don't want to talk about it, we won't. It's up. I mean, it's it's up to you. You know, we have complete editorial control over this. You understand? It's not <laughs> obligated that we do need to talk about it, but I suppose narrative demands it. Um, so grisly, wasn't it? Really, really fucking grisly, yet again. By Robson's record, uh, in the three games that he's taken charge of for the Dons at Parkhead, has now played three, lost three, four zero, conceded fifteen. I put it on the feed at Vescovdal esque, and it really is. Those numbers are uh, terrifying, quite frankly. When he's you know competed really, really well in games against the other half of Glasgow, he's. Uh, won a crucial home game against Hearts to propel us towards European football last season, dealt with the pressure involved in those closing games to get over the line then, dealt pretty well with all the away European games against sides like Frankfurt, who Frankfurt are probably a level above where Celtic are, and Pauk are probably marginally below, I would suggest, where Celtic are, despite the fact that Pauk are top of the group and Frankfurt are second. And we, we've made a fist of those games. And... We go there on Sunday against a team who had been scudded 6-0 in their previous game. And it was nowhere near good enough. It's going to be difficult. We know it's always going to be difficult when we play Celtic, whether it be home or away. And away from home, it does require discipline. And no one's expecting us to go out there, balls out and play <clears throat> two up front and really go for it on the front foot. And how we've played this season with the 5-4-1 has generally been, it's been relatively smart. We've defended pretty well, we've been tight, we've been solid, and we've shown enough quality when we've gone forward on the ball to trouble the opposition. Today it was absolutely none of that from almost minute one. In the first goal, five minutes in, at that point you can rip up your um, game plan. Uh, Kellerus, I have no idea what he's playing at, missing that cross completely at his near post, meaning it was a simple header at the back post for the Celtic striker against... To be fair, he reacted where a defence didn't really react to the, to the cross being missed by Roos. And from that moment on, you knew the, the game was up, but... 
you didn't quite realise how grisly and how bad it would get as obviously for most of the game until what 79 minutes it's 2-0 and it's just looking like the game is absolutely petering out that collapse towards the end was shameful and I completely accept that they've been through the mill on Thursday night they've had to travel back we've heard the excuses all season we'll hear it again but a professional team shouldn't be losing four goals in the space of what 20 minutes to a team in the same division as them that was, it was just terrible terrible towards the end really unlike what we've seen in a lot of these bigger games this season when we have been solid and we have at least shown a real work ethic and determination. You know, the problem's generally been at the other end um, in terms of being not creative enough, but oh, just uh, chastening. Yeah, Michael, I mean, particularly that particularly that last 10 minutes. I mean, we've, we've spoken about this before, so I want to come to you on it, Em. It's something that's been raised before about Maybe Robson's. You know, the, I mean, the game's gone. It's three. It was three nil. Um, but by Robson, sort of maybe his, his squad management. I mean, the guys were out on their feet, um, and yet we're still. We've still got you know Jensen and Gartman and Rubicic in there, you know, looking absolutely knackered, and Celtic just do the thing where they'd made some changes and they had their they had their foot on our throat and were going for it, um, and they had ten minutes out ten minutes added time, uh, and just absolutely went for it. I mean, what's your thoughts on the way that Rob, is it his tactics? Is it squad management? Is it a bit of both? I think uh, up until today, I actually was beginning to think he had a, a pretty good record in, in the... Um, you know, you know the, 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 the European games he's, he's, he's passed... Not every test. I thought the Hacken game was was a winnable tie, and and I think uh, he made errors in that in terms of the approach, um, and obviously the Pouk game that we know about the the substitutions that he or the trio of substitutions he threw on that was unwise. Um, today was a bit of a perfect storm. I, I, I you know I, I think there was maybe a bit of us thinking we know what comes next after Celtic have been hammered in Europe. They've got a home game. They've got an extra couple of days on us. Um, you know, we're coming back from far away, Greece. These are all factors. That, that doesn't make them excuses, but it does make them factors that that um, rang alarm bells with me. I must admit. And then it just becomes, it it just becomes a shit show because when you're two goals down after sixteen minutes at Parkhead, you're immediately thinking, right, what's this going to get to? Um, and you know, if you're talking about conceding a cheap goal in in Pauk, you know, God, how cheap was the the opening goal? I mean, you know, Roos is, is such a a good goalkeeper for us by and large, but you know, just he just handed handed that what first one to them. I mean, Mackenzie, I think, could have done better in tracking Yang at the back post, but he doesn't. It, it, the the second goal was Celtic at their best, really crisp passing, really sharp movement and interplay and, and Kyogo is, is, is a is a really sharp finisher. So you know, I think they they're capable of doing that, uh, no matter how good Aberdeen had been. And they weren't good. They were nowhere near good. I mean it's a pretty miraculous when you look at the final score to think that they went an hour without conceding today. Um and as uh, you know, as you're talking about the the late collapse was absolutely horrendous. Now Aberdeen have got a bit of a kind of habit of doing this recently. I mean, they lost a stoppage time goal 
at Motherwell didn't matter because they were comfortably ahead. They lost the 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 winner to Pauk at, at Petaudry in, in stoppage time. And let's not ever bloody forget the Scott Arfield goals uh, under Goodwin a, a year ago. You know, so listen, that's spread out over twelve months. So um, I'm not saying it's a it's a trend every game, but today was just such a capitulation at, at, at the end that they chucked it really, hadn't they? You know, when when the I know that the, because um, you'll read about it in the next day or two. But Celtic players knew when there was ten minutes to go, when they held up the sign saying ten minutes of stoppage time, they knew there was more chances in it for them. They knew there was more goals in it for them, uh, and that's what came. So, you know, at, at seventy six minutes, you think two nil, okay, okay, take that, take that, even three nil, take that. But for it to then go four five six, um, I think is really really pitiful and. Uh, I felt really sorry for the supporters. Um, how many times have they seen it? Uh, especially at Parkhead, it's just a, a, a whether they, I don't know whether the players get spooked. It's different players. It's even different managements, but they just don't seem capable of laying a glove on on Celtic at uh, well. To be honest, pretty, pretty much at Par- at Petodre as well, but uh, Parkhead, it's been a real killing field for for Aberdeen. I mean, I, just to reinforce Michael's point there, I mean, it is two different teams you're talking about, but that's over the space of the last 13 months. It's two 6-0s, two 5-0s, and two 4-0s we've suffered. This is not a team, really, who has that defensive resilience. Now, you had that run towards the end of last season where we were able to churn out clean sheets, and I think it coincided with Calarusa's best form for Aberdeen, coincidentally or not the same sort of time where he actually had someone as a number two who was properly challenging him in Jay Gorter. Um, Just, I don't know where you, I honestly don't know where you start with that. You should not be losing to a team, with the money we're spending, which is obviously far less than what Celtic is spending, we shouldn't be losing 6-0 to another team in our league. No, particularly, I mean, Richard, is it like why? I mean, that last ten minutes, you know, I understand we've made some changes, things like that, but surely it's a case of just you just you just shut down and you see the game out. You know, you have everybody behind the behind the everybody behind the ball, but particularly for that sixth goal, we seem to be pushing up the field. It was it seemed ridiculous trying to ignore, trying to get out for a what with three minutes to go, two minutes to go, trying to get a consolation goal or something. It's just a case I just see the game out and don't concede any more. Well, if we were pushing up the field, it's one of the few times in the afternoon that yeah. we were, to be fair. Uh, just, I mean, the fourth goal, Turnbull's got way too much time. It's a good strike and it's going to be too good for most goalkeepers. <laughs> the fifth and sixth, yeah, it's a, it's a team that have just stopped playing. Um, and yeah, they were out on their feet. And yeah, I think there's legitimate question marks to be asked about the... The squad management, you are looking at um, as much as they've tried to protect guys like uh, Chinny and reduce his game time or um, try to have Miofsky not play 90 minutes every game. Famously, of course, uh, taking him off against Pauk at home. That back three, who'd had a really difficult afternoon and had played pretty much every minute of the of the games uh, since the last international break, were... Not just physically, but mentally 
exhausted by the end. They didn't know what they were doing. They didn't know what direction was the opposition goal, basically. It was a bad afternoon. It started off badly. You have Roos handing that first goal. You have Johnny Hayes' first half efforts, which included a yellow card and then twice just letting the ball run out of play when he was in control of it. He's far from alone, but just a horrible, horrible, horrible afternoon and it raises real question marks. Real, more than I think any other single result so far this campaign. And given in mind that this campaign has produced horror shows like the the games at Tynecastle and Rugby Park and the home defeat by Hibs. Too, this is happening too often. We knew it was going to be difficult balancing the demands of European group stage football with the domestic matches, but it's happening too often. It's happening with alarming regularity that we're just putting in these risible performances and deservedly getting... Today was a hammering, but, you know, the... the Tynecastle was also hammering and Rugby Park was a hammering. It just so happened that those sides stopped at two rather than six. I mean, Michael, we've spoken about this on the show before. I mean, look, after the obviously after the the Pauk game at home where we lost three two, and then that that awful performance against Kilmarnock, um, we've you know we've beaten Motherwell comfortably despite, as you mentioned, a, lo- a collapse. We won the semi final. We got the draw away to POK, but today, I mean, it feels like you know there's there's a bit more there's a lot more pressure being put on Barry Robson, Barry Robson now, doesn't there? Yeah, there does. I mean, I, I'll, I'll be honest. On the morning of the Comanet game, I I did wonder how he would get through that five game run away from Petodri. I, I thought I, I was just worried that all of them were losable. Um, it starts with that really pathetic performance at Kilmarnock, and I thought, I think we all expected or feared the worst at Motherwell. So you know, almost like the Ross County game immediately after Eintracht, you think, all oh, right, where did that come from? You know, um, and then of course the semi-final. Listen, let's let's not can I airbrush the fact that the performance wasn't great at Hamden. I mean, it, you know, brilliant late resilience, a brilliant finish from Mayovsky, um but. We we could easily have lost that match, and that I think would have changed the the uh, complexion of the whole month and the whole season. Uh, and then we go to Pauk and we're and we're competitive and we get a result that we all enjoy. And then it, we get what happened today. If you're asking me if uh, if I would have taken this set of results from the five games, yes, I would have because I think the semi final was the most important of them. Um, but does it does it raise? Questions about Robson. I, I think there were questions about Robson anyway. Um, and I, I, the the thing that worries me is if fatigue um, is a problem uh, for this set of players. And listen, you know the the fixture list has been unforgiving, but I tell you what, it's not going to get any better. Between the first game back is against Rangers, and between that and at home to St Mirren and the end of December, we play eleven games. Now. You know that's that's a relentless schedule. Now, you can prioritise some over the other, but we also need to start winning league matches, um, because you know we are ninth. We're only two points off the bottom. I don't think any of us regard that as being a an accurate reflection of Aberdeen's strength in the league. But it, but that's the reality at the moment. 
Um, and you need to start getting points on the board if you're going to finish third again and get back into Europe, which is what we all want. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if I'd be quite as strong as Richard about um, whether it takes Robson to the brink. I don't think that would be the mindset uh, amongst the you know the club. That, that, listen, the, the final is is a chance for him to to really make a big statement as the manager of Aberdeen. Um, but uh, my God, they have to be better prepared for it, and um, I and I hope that he has a sense to to approach the Eintracht game with the cup final in mind, because you know essentially I think that one has to be sacrificed. I think taking him to the brink is maybe a little bit of an exaggeration of um, what I was trying to convey. It's certainly in the context of a tough European game on Thursday. You knew it was going to be difficult. Five away games, five games away from Petrosi in a row, as you rightly point out, Michael. Thing is, we come back after the international break, and it's domestically, it's uh, the Rangers at home, uh, and then a really, really important game away at Hibs, who will obviously be out for revenge, and that falls again three days after a European trip away from home, and then. In terms of giving supporters belief that you can actually rescue the situation domestically, and of course the table looks a little bit false right now because we're we've got games which you would consider to be winnable ones uh, at home to the likes of Dundee and Livingston, which have been postponed either through weather or through um, League Cup matches. But you could be in a situation where you are far further away from your goals domestically. Um, and maybe celebrating picking up a win in Helsinki, but what's undermining you is the failure to, you know, balance that squad correctly so that we can meet the demands both continentally and domestically. And I think that's something we've really struggled to do. Obviously, there were question marks about the quality of some of these guys that we brought in, but you're you're hitting now the end of November and you're looking at... Rhys Williams not having played a minute, or Dadia not having played a minute. Uh, Vicente Bizarin made the bench today, but hasn't played a minute. Um, Goye hasn't started, I don't think. Sockler, I don't think he's started either. You build this squad, you pay the money to have an enlarged squad to compete on both fronts, and then you don't use it. I, I am finding that really, really puzzling. As I say, we don't get to see these guys in training, so all we've had to go on, in some cases, are very, very brief instances of seeing them on the park. But I, I am perplexed by that particular aspect of uh, Robson's approach this season. Yeah, I, I I completely agree, Richard. Listen, you can't Aberdeen cannot afford to have that many passengers in the squad. You know, um, uh, as you say, Dadia Williams, uh, Vinny. I mean, these guys are just not contributing or getting the chance to contribute. And you know, you have to ask questions about that about the recruitment, um, because. I mean, I think Sockler has, has shown glimpses, hasn't he? But, um, you know, it's guys like him that are going to have to be relied on for some of these matches because you cannot expect Vinny and... Uh, uh, sorry, you can't expect um, Miofsky to, to go to the well, you know, 11 times between... Uh, in, in effectively in a month. 
Um, so uh, listen, that you know, let, let's see, let's see how it, let's see how the season as a whole pans out and how the January window pans out. But you're you're spot on. I think there is real, uh, real questions to be asked there because we saw this with Hearts last season. It does ask a lot of a club to compete domestically and in Europe on a Thursday, um, and Hearts weren't able to do it back to back. And the worry is that we we won't be able to do it either. Yeah, listen, I was realistic enough to to accept that as long as we were looking like we were in a position in the mix for third, basically. And as far as the League Cup, we've reached the final. At this point, we can't do any better than reaching the final in that competition. We've had to battle through every stage to to get there. But between now and the winter break, there are nine Premier League games and our points return has to significantly improve to give the supporter base belief that this uh, that this uh, season can be resurrected in the league after the couple of weeks off in January. I mean, it, it's such a, a tight division. You know, it's two points off the bottom and seven points off third with a game in hand. Um, you know, so if you think back to the absolute ground zero of Jim Goodwin's demise and, and where the team was at Easter Road with the 6-0. You know, you'd have thought it completely, completely ridiculous that Aberdeen could save themselves and finish third. Um, you know, so it, it, at the moment it doesn't feel anything like that. But I can also look at these um, 11 games before the end of the year and can see, I can see the slip-ups. <laughs> I, can, I can sense where the trouble spots are going to come and it's not really just the obvious ones, you know. Um, so you know, listen. Hopefully, we're just being pessimistic because it's been a, it's been a tough afternoon, but um, I, I do fear for where Aberdeen will be in the league at the turn of the year. I think the one thing giving me a little bit of hope is probably the fact that Robson has shown he can get an Aberdeen to consist Aberdeen team to consistently churn out these wins. But right now, it is looking a million miles away from from the situation that he was able to engineer last last uh, spring. So, so there we have it then. So, what we find ourselves in now is the is the international break. So, um, no game for a few weeks. So um, that means probably no podcast from us as well, which I'm sure you'll all be delighted to hear out there. Uh, next match is on Sunday, twenty sixth November, um, at home. Lunchtime kickoff to the Rangers, um, which I'm sure will be fun. But anyway. Uh, it all remains is for me to thank the guests for this evening. So as always, Richard, hey, thank you very much for for giving us your time and for venting your spleen. Uh, consider me well and truly vented. Good, and thank you very much for to Michael Grant for also coming on. Thanks, Martin. If people are wondering about what to do over the next couple of weeks, they could always read a book. Yep. Yep. Um, Any um, suggestions? suggestions? <laughs> I'll just leave it. Wouldn't it be for me to plug my own book again. Uh, thanks for having me on, guys. It's been the most enjoyable section of the day. Oh, that's quite, quite a, quite a lovely thing for you to say. I mean, look, you, you, people out there, you're listening. You're going to be you're going to be buying your cup final tickets in the next couple of weeks. So the best thing you could do is probably you know, pre-order it from the club, go and collect them, and when you're down there, pick up a copy of Michael's book as well. I, I, I could have sold 25,000 if we'd got a 50-50 split. This is the, it's, it's all the damn SFA and SPFL's fault, isn't it? 
You have to, you have to tell the boys it'll be a lean Christmas in the Grant household now. There'll be no, no turkey this year, lads. Uh, Michael Scratchett. <laughs> at least we've been able to end on a laugh. That's all that matters. Um, so until then, until we speak to you next time, um, it's been a, it's been a tough day, but we've we've gotten through this podcast and we got through that game on sadly with a with a six 0 defeat. But we'll be back. Um, and until then, come on, you Reds. <laughs> <laughs>